Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim will lead us through one of the most challenging passages that we've come across so far in our story of Genesis. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Uh, hey, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tim. I'm so glad you're with us. I hope um, if it's your very first time with us, I hope you experience that the people sitting next to you are um, so, true. I hope you see what I see in this church, that uh, some of the people in our community are some of the most gracious, most generous um, people that you will meet. And I hope you discover that. Um, uh, not all of us are super extroverts, and so sometimes we're shy. And, uh, and so um, you may discover that too, but uh, if, you, if, you, if you stick around and, and get to know them, I'm confident you'll discover somebody who truly cares and wants to lean in. And so, um, and I would love to do that too. If, you're, if you are new with us, let's, let's grab coffee or something at some point and, uh, and get connected. But um, we've got a sermon. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter, let's start in chapter 19 this morning. Genesis chapter 19. Uh, we've, been, um, we've been in the book of Genesis for about five months now. At the beginning of the year we started, it's, it's almost May. To soak that in for a second, it's almost May. Um, but, so we've been in, in Genesis for about five months. Uh, and the text that's slated for today is Genesis 18 and 19. Um, but I thought, you know what, let's start in Genesis 19 uh, because that is far more difficult. Uh, actually, as I was reading it in first service, um, I think this might be my least favorite passage in the Bible, if I can say that out loud. I actually like... I love the lesson that God has for us in the, in the passage, but it's a really tough one to read. And so it's a bit more on brand for us to start with the hard stuff. So we're going to start in Genesis 19, and then we'll, uh, Lord willing, get to Genesis 18 as well. Um, but Genesis 19, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the story. And uh, it's, um, lots of people have opinions about the story, but very few people have read the story. And it's, it's a tough one to read. With that, let's read it. Uh, Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot, um, just to pause here, uh, Sodom is a city. So this is uh, a reference. Sodom is a reference to a city. Um, it's right outside the, the Dead Sea region of Israel. And then Lot is the name of Abraham's nephew. So Abraham, a major player in the Bible, it's his nephew. And so two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot... Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they, do, that they go with him and enter his house. He prepared a meal for them, bake, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who have, come, who have came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you'd like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. 
Uh, they kept breaking, pre- uh, bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. And uh, we'll stop there. It keeps going on. Uh, following this, um, the whole city is going to get burned. Literally, fire is going to rain from heaven. Uh, everyone in the city is going to get burned except for Lot and uh, Lot's, um, Lot's family. Um, and, uh, Lot and his family are spared with the exception of Lot's wife um, because she turns and looks back at the destruction and she gets turned into a uh, pillar of salt. Um, and, um, and that's why uh, the, the ancients say that's why there's so much salt around the Dead Sea today. That, that's the story. Anybody else want to preach it? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, really, it's a really tough one, right? Like it's just a really, really tough story. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a confusing one. It's a disturbing story. Um, it, lots of people quote the story or reference the story to make points. But again, very few people actually read the story. When you read the story, it's actually way more troubling than just like the, the points we're trying to make with the story. Um, it, it's a tough story. Why, of all the stories God could say, okay, I got these stories. I want to I tell humanity about the kind of God I am and, and the kind of love and grace and truth and justice and mercy and all these things that I am. Of all the stories uh, that I'm going to put in my library of books that we call the Bible, uh, why would God choose to put this story in our Bible? Or why would the, um, the people God used to put this? Why, why this particular story? Why is this in our Bible? What do we do with this? Now, um, I grew up hearing the story and I was, uh, I was made to believe that the, the point of this story is, is uh, it's all about, um, so God talks about Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah, these twin cities, and it's all about their, their problem is all about their sexual ethic. They've got a, a messed up sexual ethic, and that's, what, that's the root of their sin. The sin of Sodom is their, their messed up sexual ethic. Uh, and, and certainly, there is a lot of ugly stuff involving, uh, involving sex in this passage. Lots of ugliness in this particular story. However, once you kind of dive into the story, what you discover is the, the Bible... When the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Bible does, a number of different authors will talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they, they reference another sin uh, as the sin of Sodom. Uh, in fact, if you read the story, it feels like the, the, the sexual ethics stuff is the symptom, but the, there's a deeper root that's going on. This whole, like, bring us the men, and then, here, have my daughters, like, like, as messed up as that is, they say there's actually a deeper root that's behind that that has kind of grown into this. Um, you can just use people however you want and treat people however you want, and it's all about your pleasure. There's actually a deeper root to this thing. Uh, for instance, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, several hundred years later, Ezekiel specifically names the sin of Sodom, and Ezekiel says, this is Ezekiel 16, verse 49, uh, Ezekiel says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. So just in case you're like, I don't know, this, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So in other words, uh, according to Ezekiel, the, the, the sin of Sodom, this was the sin of Sodom, is they pursued their own, ple- their own pleasure, what makes us feel good, what we want to do, at the expense of someone else, of, of other people, at the expense of caring for the strangers inside their gates. So these two strangers come in their gates. It's more about what we want. It's less about what, what they need. Uh, the, it's not just Ezekiel. The author Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah, 
Uh, Jeremiah is trying to talk about a city in his culture, um, city of Edom, a nation actually, the nation of Edom, and how Na- Edom has kind of gone off course. Edom's uh, on a path that's going to lead to destruction if they stay on that path. So he's trying to call that out, and he does so by pointing to the sins in that culture and in Edom and saying, you're, you're on a path that looks a lot like what I saw over at Sodom. And then he says these words. This is a sin that he connects to that. Verse 16 of 49. The terror you inspire and the pride of your heart have deceived you. So once again, it's connected to an injustice and a specific kind of injustice. Uh, An injustice that would say that there are some people or people that are here to be used. They're, They're less people to be loved or respected or cared for and more things to use. I see that in you, Jeremiah warns. And he says, okay, you gotta deal with that or you're gonna be, uh, the, the same thing was true in Sodom. Uh, then lastly, Jesus himself talks about Sodom and Jesus tells us what the sin of Sodom is. Now for some backstory, uh, Jesus in this particular moment is going to send his disciples out into the mission field. Uh, the, the ministry of Jesus is really interesting. The way he does discipleship is really interesting. For the first year or two, um, the timeline's a little tough to tell, but for the first year or two, Jesus gathers disciples and says, follow me and just watch me. So they come with me and just watch me do it. Learn how I do it. Then uh, there's, a, there's a pivot where he says, okay, you've seen me do it. Now let's do it together. Uh, I'll go, you go. Like we'll, we'll practice this together. And then there's this moment, and this is this, this moment, where he'll say, okay, now you go out, you try to do it, and come back and we'll process how that worked. So he'll send them out and then they'll come back and be like, yeah, we went out, but like some people aren't responding. And there's like, okay, let's process through that. Like, oh, you didn't pray. And like, he gets into that. And then lastly, Jesus will send out his disciples. He ascends to heaven and send them out and says that you, you can be trusted with the whole thing. So um, it goes from, from watch me do it to let's do this together to okay, I'm going to send you out and then you'll come back and we'll process to, okay, now uh, it's on you, which is kind of how a lot of great leadership models work, right? Like let's, you'll be, just watch me. I'll teach you how and then we'll figure it out. This is the moment where Jesus is going to send out his disciples. They're going to, for the very first time, they're going to be sent into the mission field. He stays back. Uh, They'll come back and report to him exactly what happens, but he's going to give them some instructions for when they go. And part of the instructions are when you go, uh, I want you to, to, you know, like go knock on the door or whatever, like go to their home. And if a person of peace, that's the language he uses, if they're there, they'll invite you in, have a meal with them, spend some time there if they want you there. If they don't want you there, leave, don't be annoying, go. Like they don't want you there. Um, but he has some language for what happens in that moment. This is what he says. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So Jesus seems to say, okay, there's a story in your Old Testament about this group of people who when strangers came to their door, they wanted nothing to do with them. It seems to be that if you line up Ezekiel and Jeremiah and uh, in the words of Jesus and several other mentions of Sodom, it seems to be that the dominant, so the sexual ethics stuff is a symptom, but the deeper root is this whole culture of, uh, it's my needs that matter, not yours. People are to be used. People are like things. Um, It's this whole culture of inhospitality. We're not going to welcome you in. We don't think you're worthy of it. 
Um, shocking that. I had somebody after church um, it come up to me last service after we kind of worked through all the stuff we'll work through and say, it's really interesting how a passage that once you kind of see all this, it feels so clearly about that, how that passage has been used as a passage to become hospitable to a whole group of people. Um, interesting how we do that with the Bible. Um, but really, it seems like the root of this is all about what does it mean to be people of hospitality? Now, um, where do they get this, this idea? Where does Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we just read the passage, we read the story, at least the beginning. Where do they come up with this idea that this is the, this is the big issue? Um, where does Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Jesus, and others come up with this, this idea? Well, it turns out that this, so if you find yourself reading the story and you thought, okay, the story begins with two, two strangers, the two angels walk through, like what on earth is going on? These two strangers enter Sodom. If you find yourself asking the question, wait a minute, who are the two strangers? That's the right question. Who are these two strangers? It turns out that Genesis 19 is the second half of a longer story that involves the, the, the movement of these strangers. Uh, Genesis 18 is going to tell us the story of three strangers. One of those strangers is going to stay back, and, and Abraham's going to plead with that stranger, and, um, and that, he's going to say, please don't destroy the city of Sodom. Abraham gets the sense that the stranger's more than just a stranger. Somehow God is present with them in these three strangers. Okay, so lots of conversation around that. But um, somehow these three strangers are going to represent God. Uh, We first meet them in Genesis 18. It's like part one and part two. If you just quote Sodom and Gomorrah without quoting Genesis 18, um, the story doesn't make a lot of sense. It's kind of like if you were to start the movie Beauty and the Beast in the middle. It's a weird movie, right? Like without the backstory of uh, this, this prince was turned into a wildebeest and you just, and like now the princess is gonna find the wildebeest and then they're gonna dance and he'll turn back into a prince. If you just start the story with a wildebeest is courting a young princess, it's a bizarre story. Without the first half, you're just left with this kind of like, what on earth are we reading? How, how, how is this okay for kids? Right? Like if, if you miss the first half of the story and just start in the middle, you, 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 you run a risk of misunderstanding the story. So what is Genesis 18 and how is it connected? And why would Jesus and others say, oh yeah, that passage is about a culture who did not know how to welcome strangers in. Genesis 18. Verse one, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was standing at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the ground, the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servants. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah, his wife. Quick, he said, get three sias of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and he selected a choice tender calf and he gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and he set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. We'll pause this. We'll end the story there. Um, so it turns out that Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and uh, later Jesus will look at this story and say, okay, there's something about hospitality that's going on in the story. Something about how these two communities, Abraham and Sarah and their family, and Sodom and Gomorrah and that whole group, treated the guests that somehow is connected to the, the, 
Somehow it's in looking at Abraham and Sarah and how they treated these guests and looking at Sodom and Gomorrah and how they treated these guests that is trying to tell us a bigger story about what it means to be hospitable. Um, Are people people to be served or are people things to be used? Now, with that... um, We'll get to some practical relevance, I promise you. But let me, let me nerd out on you for just a moment and give you six things that if you were to hold these two stories side by side, leap out at you. I think the author wants us to see these two stories side by side. Let me show you six things quickly that will leap out to you when you put the story side by side. And just for the sake of, uh, of putting them in categories that maybe we can remember, we'll put them under the categories of face, space, gate, plate, speech, and reach. Okay, so face, space, if you're taking notes, face, space, gate, plate, speech, and reach. Um, I know it's cheesy, but um, I'm pretty cheesy. And cheese is delicious. All right, so first, face, face, face. When the strangers, um, who we later learn is somehow God, again, somehow, somehow it's God himself. When the strangers come, we read that Abraham is sitting where? Near the tree, in his gateway, right? Like he's sitting near the entrance to his tents, it says. So Abraham is sitting in the tents. Now, that's a detail that's like, okay, who cares? Who cares? Like, who cares that he's sitting in a tent? However, uh, this detail is, it's actually pretty important to know in our story because Abraham isn't just sitting in his gateway. If you read the whole story, so one thing to know about your Bible is um, chapters and the headers of your chapters are not part of the original Bible, those were added later by editors so that we can kind of navigate our Bibles. So there's no Genesis 18, the three visitors. Uh, that's, those the three visitors in the Genesis 18 portion and, and even the verses were all added later to help us kind of navigate the text. The original is just one long story. So if you're reading this as one long story, you know what happens right before Genesis 18. What happens right before Genesis 18? Yeah, Abraham has just had a, I don't know what you'd call it, a procedure. <laughs> and he's like 100 years old. So like he's, we read that he's just been circumcised. If you couldn't hear, he's just been circumcised. He's like 100 years old. He's just been circumcised. And now he's sitting in his tent. And uh, we read he's sitting there. You could read he's healing there. Right? Like, this is a, like, it's going to take a while. He's going to heal for a while, which only makes the story more shocking uh, to see his hospitality because this man who's just undergone a, a procedure is now healing from his procedure, but he sees three strangers and they're making their way to his tent and, and he hurries to them. He's willing to put his own comfort behind the needs of these three strangers. Lot, if you compare the stories, is actually very similar to Abraham. Lot hurries to meet them. He begs them, don't go into the city square. He either knows what the kind of people are like in Sodom, or he simply wants to show them hospitality himself. We're not exactly certain, but Lot begs him, don't go into the city square. Stay with me. I'll prepare you some bread without yeast. A very similar story until we get to the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Sodom. And for them, it's less about like, how can we protect you? And it's more, how can we use you? That's face, second space. Uh, Abraham and Lot both invite strangers into their Beit Av. Do you remember this phrase, Beit Av? Beit Av, B-E-I-T-A-V. Um, Beit Av means father's house. 
The idea being that uh, as the patriarch of the family, as the, the, the leader of the family, your job is to protect everyone who comes into your family, everyone who comes into your tent. Both Abraham and Lot come from a worldview that, okay, if we have three strangers coming into our Beit Av, it's our job to protect you. Sodom, on the other hand, if you compare the two stories, has a very different worldview. You come into our city, we were here first. We were here first. How dare you come into our city? Uh, in fact, that's exactly what they say when Lot tries to defend them, saying, don't do this thing. Um, as, as messed up as it is, and it is highly messed up, and I think Lot is wrong, okay? So hear, hear this very clearly. When Lot offers his daughters, in his mind, he's trying to protect the stranger. It's messed up. I don't think he should have done it. I think God will have words for him someday. But in his eyes, protecting the stranger was such a big deal. They've come into our community. It's my job to protect you that I'm even willing to sacrifice my own family. Again, messed up. But in his eyes, in the Jewish worldview, protecting the Beit Av was such a big deal. But in the eyes of the city, in the eyes of, of the city of Sodom, it, we were here first. Uh, they actually say that too lot. They say, Hey, buddy, we were here first. What makes you think you can be the judge and tell us what to do? Okay, that's, that's space. Third thing, gate. Face, space, gate. Uh, Abraham, Abraham sees the strangers, and we're told he runs, is the word in your Bible. He runs to them. It says he hurries, and then it says later he runs. Both are the same Hebrew word. He runs. Now, we read that story, and nobody, as we were reading the story, there's a moment in the Genesis 19 when I can hear oxygen leave the room. When you're like, because <laughs> it's a pretty messed up story, right? There's a moment in the Sodom and Gomorrah story. But uh, there's a moment in the Genesis 18 story that if you were to read the same story to a Jewish world, they would have been like, Abraham ran? Running in our world is, is totally culturally acceptable. In fact, you're like, good on you if you run. Uh, for us, it's, it's a form of activity, exercise, um, you, you run to lose weight. You run as a hobby. Uh, many of you, when you go home, will lace up some, some jogging shoes, and you're going to go running. Um, running is just a hobby for us. But in the Jewish world, men, and I cannot stress this enough, men do not run ever. It brings dishonor on your family. It brings disgrace on your family. Running was a sign of, oh, look at me. I'm not really a man. Some of you are like, I think I'm Jewish. Um, <laughs> You do not run. Now, here's a quote from uh, the philosopher Aristotle. Um, this is kind of an ancient culture in general practice. Uh, Aristotle, writing around the time of Jesus, says, great men never run in public. Now you know what your next tattoo is going to be. <laughs> great men never run in public. Uh, ben Sirach, a Hebrew sage living a few generations before Jesus, says that a man's manner of walking tells you what he is. Does he look like he's in a hurry? He's not strong. Men walk slow and men walk confidently. Uh, the, the story of the prodigal son, when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son and the this, this son who wanders away, basically says to his dad, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me your money. I'll, I'll do it my own way. He wanders off to a distant country. He spends everything, ends up with the pigs, finds his way, stumbling back home. And then we read that dad runs to meet him. Dad being God in Jesus' story, runs to meet his son. The shocking twist of Jesus' story is that this is what our God's like. He's willing to dis disgrace himself. Later, we'll, look at, we'll learn that Jesus will die on the disgraced cross in order to protect and save us. 
That's the punch of the story is that men don't run. And here we have a dad who's running. My point is Abraham is very similar. He sees three strangers and he does everything he can to protect them and he runs to them. Very opposite of what happens in Sodom. Compare the two stories. Next face, space, gate, next plate. Uh, when the guests arrive, Abraham feeds them. Abraham feeds them. This is, um, this is a pretty big deal. Uh, Abraham feeds them, and not just a little bit, uh, but it's, he feeds them a lot. He, he prepares the, the best calf. And then he gives them curds and milk. It's an ancient delicacy. Uh, curds, curds and milk. Like, it's almost curdled milk. I, first time I was in Israel, um, we stopped at a Bedouin tent. So this is still a delicacy, by the way. Um, we stopped at a Bedouin tent and I was with, I was like 26 and I was uh, one of the chaperones of a group of uh, high school seniors who had just graduated. And uh, our teacher, um, our, our kind of Israeli guide had said, hey, um, they're going to give you this and you have to drink it. it, it you will disgrace, you will, you will, um, they will, they will be shamed if you don't drink it. They'll be shamed. And so um, I got this little sh- like shot glass of curdled milk and I took one sip and I'm like, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. Uh, for them, it's a delicacy, but for our palate, uh, it's, just not, it's not something we drink. Um, and then all of a sudden, I noticed that all of the, the girls on my trip were handing me their glasses. And I'm like, I can't take all of these for our team, but we'll go. We'll go. I almost threw up the curdled milk. Um, my point is it's still, it's still kind of a cultural practice. They make curdled milk. Then the last detail that, they, that he makes them, uh, Abraham and Sarah make them, is this detail, and this is uh, the most shocking. Um, get me three sias of the finest flour so we can make some bread. Three sias of the finest flour. Uh, sia means nothing to us because we don't measure in terms of sias. We use cups and ounces and all those things. But sia in, uh, is about approximately 60 pounds of flour. It would make about 52 loaves of bread, I am told. 52 loaves of bread. Is hospitality a big deal to Abraham? It's a big deal. Uh, my, my wife's Italian. You could, there's a... We're not, we're, no, this one's not on the live stream, so I can say this. Um, there's warm cultures. You ever hear this? Like, a, this is a, a warm culture, and then there's like Dutch culture, which is not a warm culture. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like Hispanics have a very warm culture. Like, you know, you're, uh, you can tell the, uh, the, the, sl- the slogan in, um, in Latin culture is uh, mi casa es su casa, right? Uh, in Dutch culture, it's a man's house is his castle. <laughs> very different worldviews. My wife's Italian. It's a very warm culture. And uh, we gave a buzz to her grandma when we were driving to Florida a while back, a couple years ago. And, uh, and she goes, okay, how many, are, how many are coming? And we're like, well, there's four of us. Um, this was before we had kids, and uh, we show up to her, her little condo, and she's made a bucket of chicken. It's like 60 pounds of chicken. And I'm like, we said four of us. How much chicken did you? Th-? And then it's like, you better eat all this chicken because uh, grandma thinks you're getting too skinny. And so it's like, all right, here we go. Um, but that's the culture. Like, this is a warm culture. It's, it, the Jewish culture is hospitality is a big deal. When Jesus wants to explain what God's kingdom is like, Guess which story he tells. Hear these words from Matthew 13, verse 33. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into, your Bible says, about 60 pounds of flour. If you probably has an asterisk by it, that will say three measures of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. He quotes the Abraham story and says, you want to know what God's world is like? Look at Abraham and Sarah. 
I asked my, um, my trip guide, I said, uh, uh, actually, this is a question I ask almost every Israeli who's a, a, a Jesus follower. I'll ask the question, why do you think God chose Israel? Of all the, the nations to write his story, the canvas of, of, of so much of our Bible, why do, you think, why do you think God chose Israel? I usually hear one of two responses. Either it's the discipleship model. Um, the discipleship model of, of ancient Israel is very unique. In our, like in our world or any other culture, it's very unique. The other thing I hear is you know, it's, it's their hospitality. God chose the most hospitable place because if this movement's going to launch, it's going to be based on how they do it in their hospitality. Um, okay, so that's, I, I think he's right, by the way. Uh, this is, so face, space, gate, plate, fifth speech. Um, notice how Abram talks to his guests. He calls them Lord. Now, um, when you hear Lord, it's easy to hear Lord as in God, right? Like he's saying all, the, all capital L-O-R-Ds. This is not that. This is Lord as in Lord and servant. So like master servant. Uh, in fact, if you look at the language, he says, um, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, my, my master, do not pass by your, do not pass your servant by. He, he puts them here and he puts himself here. The, the, the guests who are coming into his tent, he says, my job is to serve you. This is the very opposite, his speech is the very opposite of the speech of the men of Sodom who say, bring them out to us. They don't even say, come out to us. They say, bring them out to us. They're just pushing them around. Bring them out to us. And then later it's, how dare you? You just moved here a lot. You don't tell us what to do. Okay, so that's speech. And then last, reach. Uh, reach is about who you care for. I find this detail really interesting. Um, and this is one that would have leapt off, off the page to an ancient culture. And for us, it's, it's uh, almost certainly most of us probably read right over this. I know I did for years. There is a detail in the passage. Um, actually, this, the, the Genesis 19 helps us see the Genesis 18 detail if we're watching it carefully. But there's a detail. Genesis 18 begins that the, with the three strangers show up at what time? In the heat of the day. This is a red flag kind of detail in your Bible. Ancient cultures, especially Bedouin cultures, would build their cities about 25 miles apart because the desert's unsurvivable. Without a community of hospitality, you cannot survive. Why 25 miles? Because they said that's a day's journey. So you can make it one day with, uh, you can pack your back, with one day's worth of supplies. And if you walk all day, by nightfall, you will make it into the next Bedouin village and they will care for you by nightfall. When you read that, which is, by the way, is Lot's thing, right? He's like, okay, they come at night. So he's like, okay, this is normal. They came at night. This is when most people show up to a village. And so he says, stay with me through the night and then you can leave in the morning. That's the practice. But when the three strangers show up in the middle of the day, we have a major cultural red flag. What must Abraham be thinking? They've walked all night, all day, all night, and now half of the next day, and they, they're in trouble. Their food's gone. Their water's gone. They must have missed the last Bedouin village, the last little tent. They missed it, and now they're, they, they're stumbling in here in the middle of the day. Why does he run? Why the hurry? These, these three strangers are in trouble. Now notice, he doesn't ask why. 
Doesn't ask why. Maybe they're con, like they're, they're convicts on the run. Like he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask why they didn't stop at the last village. Did you miss it? He doesn't interrogate them. He simply sees three strangers who are in need and he does whatever he can to make sure that their needs are cared for. The very opposite is true for the people of Sodom. Two strangers in that story, one stays back. Two strangers show up to Sodom and the people say, we're not going to wait for nightfall. Give them to us now. We'll break down your door. We'll treat you worse than them, Lot, if you don't give them to us. Okay, relevance. Um, What do we do with any of this? Uh, Notice, by the way, uh, in the years after Jesus, the early church would take these kinds of teachings about Jesus and they would say, okay, what do we do with this? How do we live this out? We're Christians. How do we share the world this message of Jesus? The early Christians would, if you notice the word hospitality, sounds a lot like a lot of other words in our culture. That's intentional. It was the Christians who said, okay, um, what do we do if somebody's hurting and in need and they have, they need, they, they're in need of medical care? Hospitals first came from Christians. Um, what about if they're traveling for a day and they have nowhere to stay for a night? Who should care for them? Christians invented hotels. What about uh, if they're like traveling all through a country that they can know they can stop? Christians invented hostels. Christians invented hospice care. These are Christian inventions. Now, uh, there's money to be made in creating a great hospitality culture. And so we've got money to be made in the hotel industry. There's money to be made in the hospital industry. The government sees there's a need in it. So the go- like we've, lo- we've lost the grip on these things. But early on, it was Christians who said, hospitality is so important to this message of Jesus. We're the ones. If you're sick, we'll care for you. If you're... Um, if you're wandering and you're lonely and you're scared, we'll take you in. No payment. No, we don't do that. We'll take you in. Hotels, we'll take you in. Um, if, if, if you're in need at the end of your life, if you've got no family members who will sit by you as you're dying, we'll sit by you. And that, I find that really powerful. Hospitality became the bedrock of Christianity. Um, before anyone can make money off them, Christians said, we'll do it. Now, where do they get this idea? Literally Jesus, commanded, or literally, Jesus commanded it, and they began to command it of one another very early on. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Romans chapter 12, the author Paul says this, verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality is uh, like practicing throwing a football. Um, practice it so often that you, it becomes second nature for you. Practice it so often that it's no longer I'm trying to be hospitable, but it's just you're just hospitable people. So I was talking to somebody um, after the service, and I was like, you know, you're one of the people I think about when they were crying. I watched them cry. I'm like, this is just our heartbeat. We love this idea. Like, we've, we've worked hard, and like, we just feel like we're not being great at that. And I was like, you literally offered up your cottage to me last week. And they don't even see it. They have no idea that they did that. Because like, the weather's going to be nicer here than when we went on vacation. You should stay at our place. And I was like, you don't even see you're doing this because it's just, it drips out of you. It drips out of you. Um, practice hospitality. First uh, Peter 4. Peter says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another And then these two little words are tough for me, maybe you too, without grumbling. 
It's like none of the like, oh no, so and so's coming over. They never leave on time. <laughs> yeah, you know those people where it's like you give them the hints, like oh, I got a big day tomorrow. Like oh yeah, us too. Okay. Um, <laughs> or they're like they're like, hey, we brought over uh, chips and salsa. Okay, thanks uh, again. Chips and salsa. Like we got a potluck. Um, I got 19 bags of chips and salsa. And, or they like, we'll bring the chicken for everybody. And they realize, like, that's not enough. And we planned on you bringing the chicken. No grumbling. This is, Peter says, no grumbling. Uh, or she always tells the most awkward stories. And then we're all like, do we laugh at the awkward story? Like, do I, like, do I get, no grumbling. Hospitality without grumbling. Hebrews says, keep loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. What story is that story hearkening back to? Yeah, the, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, remember that moment back then when some people showed hospitality to angels when they thought they were people? You ought to do the same. The early church was insistent that this was our job. Uh, in we could keep giving passages, but uh, let me give you a couple examples of uh, in First Timothy chapter three and in Titus chapter one. If you're an elder, a deacon, elders, deacons, pastors, our job description of in those two passages, the, the the job description of leadership from the early church is we don't have the option. It's part of our job description. We have to be people of hospitality. Now, I've heard of pastors getting fired for like uh, scandals, money, affairs, things like that. I've never heard of a pastor being fired because he wasn't hospitable or she wasn't hospitable. Like, can you imagine like, you, you know, like, uh, Tim, we love you, but we got to let you go. And I'm like, why? Well, we've noticed you've not invited anyone over to your house in a month. Right, like that, but like the, if we take the Bible seriously, that should be a fireable offense according to uh, those passages. Now, um, Oh, this is really key. This is really key. Uh, the word hospitality that you read in your Bible in all of the places we just listed, that word hospitality, I didn't know this. I find this very interesting. The word is a Greek word. New Testament's written in Greek. Um, the word is philoxenia. Philoxenia is a compound word. Um, that means it's two words smashed together. The word philo, or philo, think Philadelphia, it means to love like family. It's a family kind of love. So like uh, Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. Philo is to love like family. The word xenia. Uh, have you ever heard of the phrase xenophobic? Uh, xenophobic is fear of the outsider, immigrant, or stranger. Hospitality is family love towards the outsider, the immigrant, the stranger. Or the guest. The word itself is how do we show love? Not fear towards, but how do you show love to the people who you have nothing in common with? You don't know where they came from. They stumbled in your tent in the middle of the next day. What do you do? Now, um, before we, we'll wrap up. I promise I'll wrap up real quick. Uh, but let me just be really clear. Some of you are more natural at this than, than others. Um, I, if you're thinking right now, like I'm, I, I, buy, I buy it. I think the Bible is pretty clear that we have to be hospitable. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. But I'm pretty shy, and I'm pretty introverted. And uh, 
Uh, maybe you're thinking like, I'm a number two on the Enneagram. I'm not a number two on the Enneagram. Everyone else is number twos. That's what they do. I'm not a number two on the Enneagram. You can do this. You can do this. You do not have to be a number two on the Enneagram. If you're like, what's the Enneagram? Don't worry about it. Um, but you don't have to be a super extrovert. If you're introverted, I, I find, I, to be honest with you, I'm pretty introverted. It's way easier for me to stand on a stage like this than, than the circles after a church service. Like if, if that's you, like I, honestly, that, like it's, it's hard. It's hard. It, some people find energy in hanging out with other people in, in like casual conversation. Some people find energy from trees and sitting outside on a beach. I'm those people. Um, if, you, if you're somebody who's like, ah, I, I find myself in those circles and, like, uh, and I find myself in the circles and I always say something really awkward, I'm with you. I say the awkward thing too. And then I go back home and I'm like, why did I say the awkward thing? I made everyone else feel awkward. Uh, you too can do this. We can be, honestly, some of our most hospitable people in our church are, uh, are pretty significant introverts. I won't give names because I don't want to embarrass them, but... Um, because it would embarrass them. Honestly, the, you'll, you notice them every time we make them, pull, we, we don't make them, but when we, we're not a cult, but when we invite them up on our stage, <laughs> you will now do this. Uh, when we invite them up on the stage, you will notice that some people shake because they're introverted. They're trying to help us, so they're standing on the stage and they're sharing their story, but they don't want to steer their story. This is a hard moment. It's a hard, it's a hard moment. Um, but some of our most friendly faces that you walk by every, every week and they make you feel really good, they just offer you a smile. They offer you a uh, good morning, and, um, and they're doing that because they're trying to create a hospitable environment, not because it's natural or it's easy for them. Um, and uh, I actually talked to somebody, and they're like, I don't know what to say. I'm like, just smile. You've got a great smile. You'll be, it'll, like, the, like, people just need that. We all are lonely, and we just need that. You, you can do this. You can do this. Um, I, uh, in preparation for this, oops, in pre- preparation for this sir. This sermon, I was uh, I picked up a couple books, and I was the intention was I was going to read them. I went on vacation last week with my family, uh, and I was going to read them on vacation. Um, that was my intention. I didn't. I didn't read the books. Um, but so I can't. It's hard for me to to part of my. Uh, I I struggle to quote books that I haven't read because I have no idea what else they're going to say. And so like I can quote a part of the book, but if I didn't read the whole book, and you're going to read it and say, hey, what about this? And I'm like, you're right. That's crazy. I don't know why I told you to read that book. So I want to give you a warning. I've not, I have not actually had a chance to read the book. I picked it up and I uh, was going to read the book. Um, but I find this person's, uh, her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Anybody read Rosaria Butterfield? Okay. Um, uh, I found the uh, well, here's your backstory, then I'll give you a quote that I'm, I'm going to quote a book that I haven't read, which I don't like doing, but I'm going to, because um, it's such a good quote. But uh, the, her backstory is really interesting. Um, I did listen to an interview with her, and her backstory is really interesting. She has a whole nother book on, their, on her backstory. But her backstory is essentially, she was a pretty anti-Christian. She thought what you are doing right now was absolute ma- like madness. Worse than madness, she thought you were the problem. You Christians, we Christians, we're the problem. Uh, and she was an English professor and spent a lot of time kind of helping people see that Christians are the problem. We're the ones who are causing more violence in the world. We're the ones who are causing more hate in the world. We're the ones who are filling up uh, the news waves with more um, toxic language. We're the, we are the problem. And she was pretty adamant on that, believed it. And, uh, and she wrote this op-ed. I'm not sure where it was published, but she wrote an op-ed opinion piece, and, uh, and was reading through the comments, and there was a comment to the opinion piece, basically saying what I just said, Christians are the problem. 
Uh, and the person who responded was a pastor, and they were, she said they were really gracious in their response, and at the end of their response said, would love to invite you over for dinner if you're interested. So she said, this will make a good part two of my op-ed. I'll go over for dinner. And, uh, and so she went over for dinner, and they, she sat talking, and she said it just went on and on. And I said this, I finally felt like somebody was asking me hard questions that I wanted to talk. I like, felt like they saw me. And, and, and uh, at the end of the dinner, they said, we'd love for you to come back again. Maybe We do this all the time, maybe next week. And she said, okay, I'll come back next week. And then another week, and then another week, and then another week. And at some point, she said, I don't know that this is madness anymore. And now she's a Christian. I say all that because... I picked up a book to read, and I never read it. Um, but the book is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, I intended to, to read it, and then I realized that my kids wanted me to be a good dad, too. So I did that instead. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but this other book, this is, the, this is the preface to her introduction to the book. So this is like how she kicks off the introduction to the introduction. This is uh, how she begins the book. I, I read this as a way of saying, you can do this. Um, radical, ordinary, hospitality. Those three words, by the way. Right next to your men don't run tattoo, put radical, ordinary, hospitality. I love that phrase. Radical, ordinary, hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality see their homes, not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the, for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? My guess is you know somebody that does that. My guess is that's the person who actually first led you to know Jesus. The gospel, radical, ordinary hospitality. Did you know that there are two places in your Bible, uh, in the gospels at least, that tell you why Jesus came? One is his mission. Here's why Jesus came. The other is his method. Here's the mission of Jesus. Uh, Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We say it, God came to help people find their way back to him. Okay? Jesus came to help people find the way back to God. That's the mission. So how, the question then is, how is he going to do that? Well, the Gospels tell us too. Matthew eleven nineteen 19 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say he's a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's the method? How is Jesus going to like, help people find their way back to God? How is he going to seek and save the lost? He eats meals. And he drinks good drink, and he does it with people. Uh, Robert Karras, in his book, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, writes that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Like every story, he's like, Jesus is on his way to a meal, from a meal, and they say he's a drunk and a glutton. Every picture we show of Jesus, he's very, very skinny. I don't know. Um, but, but Jesus Jesus is always going to a meal, coming from, like I, he does walk a lot. I don't know. Um, what, do you want to know Jesus' number one strategy for evangelism? That's a fancy word for sharing about who God is with people. You know what Jesus' strategy? If you've got a room full of people like most of us, we are believers, what Jesus would do is he'd get a boat and he'd park it up against the Sea of Galilee because there's a natural like amplifier off the water. 
Um, or he's going to sit up on a hill so that there's a land, per, like they can speak off the land, and he's going to preach a sermon. And they're quite brilliant. He's going to quote the Old Testament, Moses, Abraham, David. He's going to tie all these strings together in a really brilliant way. That's what he does to believers. But if you've been hurt at all, if you're scared, if uh, from the, the wealthy outsider like Zacchaeus to the, the sex worker prostitutes, if that's if anywhere in between, if you're somebody who feels like I've been hurt by the church, I trusted a Christian and they stabbed me in the back. And that got tied in with two Jesuses and your theology into this one toxic mix, and now you find yourself in the church doors, and you're like, I, I like the message, but I don't know if I trust these people. You know Jesus' primary method of evangelism to you? Some wine, some bread, maybe a steak, maybe some uh, your grandma's scotcheroo, secret recipe, whatever your thing is, uh, a meal. Every, sing, every single time you read about Jesus encountering people who are hurting, this is typically his invitation to them. You open your home. Um, what if I don't have a home? Invite yourself over to theirs. It's a trick I used to do all the time when I was in my 20s. I was like, can I come over? Uh, most people are lonely. They would love, they would love just some company. Uh, have a, have, a, late, have a, a long meal late into the night. Uh, open up a bottle of wine if that's your thing. It turns out, by the way, the, the gospel pairs really well with a Malbec and a, <laughs> and a steak. I'm just saying. Uh, talk. Ask, and don't just talk. Ask questions. Like, like just seriously, listen. Ask, some, ask questions. No bait and switch. No weirdness. No moment of like, well, now I've got to present to you the gospel. None of that. You're a Jesus person. It'll come up eventually. They, like it, like you're a Jesus person. It'll come up. They'll, it'll go there. Like you don't got to force it. And it, does, it may not come up right away. That's okay. That's not like, love them as they are. Love them where they are. Let them love you where you are. Let them like care for you and to pray for you. Like, um, it, we all eat meals. Like every, like, Three meals a day, or most of us, seven meals a day. We're Americans. Uh, have a meal. Take one of them and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend this one meal, and I'm going to try to love somebody in this meal that I don't know if they, know, they don't know Jesus. Um, or I just want to love them because they're my neighbor, and I never met them, and I really want to know my neighbors. I don't have enough money for food. Um, my, one of the most hospitable people I met was a guy named Mike. He lived in the dorm room down the hall when we were in college. We were both paying Hope College fees and so we were living on, like, money that we're still paying off. Uh, like, we had no money. He made ramen bowls periodically, and he would invite everyone over for ramen nights. Don't, doesn't have to be, like, you don't have to have a ton of money to pull this off. Um, the hospitality is something we can all, we, you can do this. You can do this. You, you can do this. There is a difference, by the way, between um, how we think of entertaining and, how we th and what the Bible means by hospitality. These are not the same thing. Okay? Entertaining in our world, you go to Instagram and you see these like, elaborate tables with this amazing food. If you can do that, do that. But um, big homes, amazing tables. Everyone's Swedish and has abs, even though they're eating all the stuff. Um, but that's like the image we have of this is hospitality. That's not hospitality. That's entertaining. That's entertaining. Uh, it's not bad. Entertaining's fine, but entertaining tends to be planned. 
Entertaining tends to be, uh, you have to be invited to be entertained. We tend to invite people who are, it's a way of kind of working our way up the social ladder. We invite people that we think are cool, um, people that we think are worthy of our respect, people that we want them to like us, or people that are like us, that we just think we have a lot in common, kids in the same school, whatever. Entertaining, that's totally fine to entertain. But Jesus says, when you invite guests, just be aware, like as you invite them, they'll, you'll play the game at the end of, hey, we got you next time. Jesus says, yep, and he, they will, and the reward is they have you next time. But you, he says, what well, I want you to do, this is hospitality, go into the streets, find the poor, find the hurting, invite them in. They can't repay you. Your reward will be stored somewhere else. That's hospitality. Hospitality is not how do we work our way up, it's how do we work our way down. Hospitality, entertainment is a kind of social hierarchy. It's about reciprocity. Uh, hospitality is about justice. It's about justice for the poor. Who in our world is not like us at all? Who's the neighbor that no one's inviting over? Who's the person in our world who's just lonely and they're scared? Hospitality says we go to them. Hospitals were built for them. Hotels were built for them initially. I don't know how to cook any good food. Yeah, YouTube it. YouTube it. There's, like, just become like the, the Gordon Ramsay of one thing. And make that your thing. Every time you're like, I'm going to have a meal. I'm going to make that thing. And you'll be known as the, the meatball and pasta guy or whatever. Like, just become like the expert of like one thing. Just YouTube it. it you'll figure it out. It'll practice hospitality. Just make it a lot. Figure out how to make it. Just make it your one thing. And, uh, and like, there's a lot of excuses we can give ourselves off the hook. I'm pretty introverted. And honestly, like, I, my best version of a night is usually me not going out. So like, I got to work at this too. But uh, I, I think that what the early church saw is that the method of Jesus is really important. It's not just the mission of Jesus. His method matters. And when, when they went out and said, we're going to open our table, we're going to break bread and we're going to share that bread and share that wine with our neighbors and our friends and the people who are scared and the outcasts, it changed the world. It absolutely changed the world. You can do this. You can do this. Um, I'll do it with you. We'll practice together. Do you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, uh, we ask that you would bring to mind a person, a, a face, a family, um, someone in our world, someone in our life who uh, right now as we say the word uh, hospitality and we think of who should I reach out to, who should I invite over, who should I have a block party and just kind of make sure they know that they're invited uh, Lord, we, we pray that you'd bring a mind, an image, somebody in our life that we can begin doing that work with. Um, Lord, we thank you for those who have done that with us and for us. Um, Lord, most likely, uh, we are all here not because of a sermon preached by of somebody on a stage like I am right now, but by somebody opening up their home to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that person. And Jesus, we pray that we can become those people for somebody else. So would you um, convict us, inspire us, Give us confidence. And Lord, um, ultimately, we, we will say thank you in advance for the new relationships you'll bring to us. Jesus, we love you. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. 
And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.